for some, they're like so happy that you don't have to shake somebody's hand now. Turn to somebody and shake their hand. Praise God. We don't have to do that anymore. Uh, we are outside, and um, it's awesome to be outside, but it's also very distracting to teach because it's like squirrel, like literally a squirrel just ran by. So uh, I got to keep things pretty simple um, and to the point. We're finishing part two. Uh, we talked about marriage. Proverbs has wisdom in, on marriage. So we're in part two of that. Uh, if you're here today and you're like, well, I'm single. I'm never getting married. What does this have to do with me? Why should I listen to this? Let me ask you two questions. Number one, do you know anyone that's married? Question number two, do you know anyone that's ever struggled with a relationship with the opposite sex? If you answered no to both of those questions, you can start your car and leave right now because this wouldn't apply to you. So when you get wisdom, it's not always just for yourself. Sometimes we get wisdom so that we can help and assist other people. That's what wise people do. And Proverbs is full of that. Like get around wise people because they'll help you. So some of this is just, hey, help somebody else as well. All right? So we're at the last two points. And, and these work for every relationship. And they're trust and doing good. So I said last week, if you took all the marriage advice and you could just condense it down to one sentence, that sentence would look like this. Marriage, according to Proverbs, is an emotional, covenantal partnership built on trust and doing good. So we hit the three first ones last week, covenant, partnership, emotional. We're going to look at the last two, which is doing good and trust. All right? So if you have your Bible, Proverbs 31, which is the Mother's Day proverb, right? So Proverbs 31, 11 says this. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. Trust. Do Americans have a problem with trust? Do we trust politicians? I'll answer that for you, no. Each of us, I don't care what side or where you lay on the political spectrum, you have people in politics that you just say, they're lying idiots. So a recent poll said 11% of Americans trust Congress. I'm like, 11%? Where'd they get the 11%? Did they like poll kindergarten or something? I don't think anybody trusts Congress. All right? So we don't trust politicians. Do we trust the news? All of us have that channel that we just say, they're a shill for their, for their political party. 20% of us trust the news. How about, do you and I, do we trust science now? Because on coronavirus, you can find scientists on both sides, right? Smart, PhD, Stanford Medical, Mayo, whatever it is, the smartest, best people, and they're 
giving us completely different views of this. Like even scientists don't trust other scientists. We don't trust scientists. How about religious people? Do we trust religious people? You ever turn on the TV and see a religious person speaking on TV? You can ask my wife, I cannot watch Christian TV because eventually I just start yelling at the TV. Jesus did not say that, right? So we have trust issues and these trust issues, what happens is they spill over into our other relationships, okay? And they kind of pollute them. So for one of the keys on a wise marriage, it's gotta be covenantal, it's gotta be partnership, it's gotta be emotional, but it also has to be trusting. And the Hebrew word for trust here means this, someone you can rely on, someone you're not suspicious of, someone that you can place your hope in. That's trust. And I'll put it like this. Trust is a verb. Trust is a verb. Trust is not, well, I said this, or I meant this, or my heart is like this. Trust is based solely on what you and what I do, its actions. So if you have a friend who is consistently late all the time, and there's a very important thing you need to do the next day, and the guy says, hey, don't worry, I won't be late. Do you trust him? No, you'll say, when I see it, then I'll believe it. Because you and I know at the core of trust, trust is an action. And trust takes years to build, seconds to break, and forever to rebuild. And trust is one of the keys inside of Proverbs when it comes to marriage. And I've sat in marriage counseling and talked with couples, and I'll have a husband complaining that his spouse doesn't trust him. She doesn't trust me. And sometimes I have to say, yeah, neither would I, man because you're not trustworthy. And that's a major problem in your marriage. You are not trustworthy. And I've used this illustration and it's kind of, it's what it is. I don't have a good one. If you have a better one, then please give it to me, email it to me. But I say trust, trust is like the wrapper that goes around your big block of cheese. As long as that wrapper's on there, the cheese stays pretty good. But the moment you cut that wrapper and you get your cheese and you put that cheese back in the fridge and you forget about it, what happens to the cheese? It has problems. It gets hard and moldy, right? Well, trust is like that wrapper. Once the trust is broken, look out, all these problems come in. I know that's a really cheesy metaphor. It's the best I have. <laughs> so all of a sudden, when, when trust is broken, all of a sudden, suspicion comes in. Why was he late today? Is he, is he hiding something from me? You start to overreact. Man, she was raising her voice at me. Is she mad at me? Boy, he grabbed his phone really fast. Is he being unfaithful to me? So that's the problem. Once trust is broken, it just opens you up to all these other problems. So really quick how to maintain trust and how to rebuild trust. If you're gonna have a trusting marriage, you gotta maintain that trust. 
And here's some advice. Number one, if you want to be trustworthy, and this is not only in marriage, but in anything, number one, let your yes be yes. If trust is a verb, then do what you say. So the psalmist would say this. It's Psalm 15, one through four. He says, there's a kind of man that keeps his vow even to his own hurt. That there's a man that lives such a lifestyle that if he gives his word, his word is his bond. He will keep his word. Here's what happens in a marriage because you get comfortable in it. We stop doing that. We stop letting our yes be yes. And what I've noticed is this, is in marriage, you can begin to do this. You can begin to give yourself grace when it comes to keeping your word, but you give the law to your spouse, right? So you have all the excuses why you can't keep something, can't keep your word or can't do what you say, but you expect your spouse, your wife, your husband to do it, right? So, oh, I couldn't make it this morning. I couldn't get up. I couldn't, because last night I didn't sleep very well. Give yourself grace. But your spouse, they couldn't do it. They don't make it. They didn't keep their word. What was wrong with you, man? We had an agreement. Or when it comes to money. I had to buy it. I couldn't call you. I had to do it. It was a really, really good deal. You don't understand. But if your spouse did the same thing, wait, we had an agreement. We weren't going to make these kind of financial decisions unless we talked. So what happens is we begin to give ourselves grace when it comes to our yeses and yes, no's, and we give our spouses the law. Don't do that. You want to be trustworthy, let your yes be yes and let your no be no, just like Jesus said. And that takes prayer. Like a good practice is every morning for a husband, for a wife to wake up and say, Jesus today, help me to be gracious to my spouse. Help me to give her, him, the benefit of the doubt, but help me, help my yes to be yes and my no to be no. Help me to keep my word. And I need your spirit to do that. So fill me, empower me. Remind me today as I go throughout my day about where I need to be keeping my word to be trust, trustworthy in this covenant I've entered into with my spouse. So number one, you wanna be trustworthy? Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Number two, lose one for the team. I think sometimes in marriages, we make mountains out of molehills. We fight every battle. And I have that in me. I am a control freak. I like things a certain way. And I'm always trying to push that thing down. It can help you, but man, it's a terrible master. It can ruin you. So you have to be very careful. I want things a certain way. I want a certain song on the radio. I want my house to look at, right? You can just start naming them. Well, if I fight over everything... Then when the things that are really important, when they come up, it's just, oh, he's a control freak. So I'm learning, who cares what's on the radio? Don't fight that battle. Or here's my thing, like, I've always thought that most vehicles are a very bad financial decision, right? They're not a good investment, unless it's a 1966 Volkswagen van. Great investment, goes up in value, right? So I'll drive anything. 100%. I don't care what I drive. You can ask my wife. Like for a while, when I was in the business world, someone gave me, this is how bad the vehicle was. They gave it to me. It was a 1974 GMC six-door crummy, like literally crummy truck. 
and it had been beat to snot. It had been out on logging jobs, all this kind of stuff. It was rusted. It was nasty. This is what my wife said about it. She said, that is the ugliest vehicle in Southern Oregon. We live in Southern Oregon. There are ugly vehicles in Southern Oregon. And it was the ugliest vehicle in Southern Oregon. At one time it was baby blue, but because of the diesel and the grease and the rust and the dust over years and years of misuse, it had turned to the color of like old guacamole. So it was just nasty. I drove that thing until the transmission blew up. I'm pretty sure Charity had been praying, God, take this vehicle from my husband. He will never get rid of it. So it blew up. I thought about driving it in reverse because that's the only gear that would work. I just don't care. My wife is different. She doesn't want to drive a 1974 GMC that looks like old guacamole. Now, I could fight that battle if I wanted to, but it's not worth it. It's what kind of vehicle do you like? Like, I love minivans. My wife does not. She wants a Suburban. Okay, I'm going to lose that. That way, when I do say, hey, this is really important to me, honey. She's not saying, well, everything's important to you. You know, you're always fighting everything. It's, okay, you've lost some battles. Okay, this must really mean something. I trust you on it. Lose, lose some to win some. Like when I talk to new couples, I always tell them this. When you get married, you just joined a competition for life. You're in a competition with your spouse. It's not a competition to see who can get the remote first or see who can eat the last of the ice cream or see who can spend more money. Who spends more money in a, in a marriage? I know husbands are saying, get them. Get them right now. I don't think so, right? How much is your $5,000 quad or your $10,000 motorcycle? Yeah, but she gets her haircut all the time. That's a lot of haircuts, man. Lots of haircuts. You don't compete on those things. Here's what you compete on. How do you serve each other? Selfishness kills trust. Service builds trust. If you are saying each morning, I want to serve my spouse somehow. I want to make her dreams come true. I want her to love the house that we live in. Oh my goodness. Your trust fund goes through the roof. Serve each other. Serve. Let your yes be yes. Lose some to win some. And serve. Nothing ever goes bad with serving. Nothing. Well, Matt, I've broken trust. What do I do? Real quick. Number one, listen. Let me repeat that. Listen. I don't know how many times I've quoted James 1.19 to married couples. Be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to wrath. If you have broken trust, then you have to give your spouse Ample times to repeat to you the same thing over and over and over and over again, listening and saying, right, I know it. I blew it. I broke trust there. It's my bad. I know it. You listen, you listen, you listen time and time again. You don't blame. You don't make excuses. You listen. Number two, do what you say. Start being a person that's yes is yes and no is no. You do what you say. Number three, be patient. Trust is broken quick. It's repaired slowly. And you have to realize that. I will be patient. I won't force. I won't demand trust, right? You can never demand trust. 
Demanding trust is like demanding it rain. It does not work. You have to allow life to do what it's going to do. And you have to say, okay, I will be patient and allow trust to be built as I keep my word, as I listen to you, as I take responsibility. That's what I'm going to do. Right? And then you're humble. How can we not be humble? Right? Anyone that's honest with themselves, how can you not be humble? Like the more I look at my life and the more I look at what I've, like how stupid I've been over my life. I'm like, man, I, humble, humility should be easy. Be humble. Be humble. Want good relationships, especially in your marriage? Proverbs 31.11. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will lack no gain. Number two, do good. The next verse. She... He trusts her, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. You do good. I think personally, this is a reflection back to the very first couple, Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. Because there's actually a wedding ceremony in Genesis 1. God creates them, and then God gives his mandate, his mission statement to them. He says this, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the creative order. Five mandates there in that mission statement God gives to the first married couple. All right, some of them are easy. Be fruitful and multiply. Pretty simple. God's gift to marriages right? Have kids, have lots of babies, do that. But I think it's more than that. You can be fruitful without having kids. You can do foster care, or you can adopt, or you can mentor, or you can train, just reproducing yourself and others. So I look at the apostle Paul, for instance, or Jesus never had kids, or kids aren't mentioned for Paul, but did they reproduce themselves? Were they fruitful? Oh my goodness, hugely. Right? So be fruitful. That's easy. The one that's hard is this word subdue. Because it's used 15 other times in the Bible. And every other time it's used, it's a war term. Take land, get rid of evil, put out that. Destroy. It's, it's a war term. So God's mandate to the first married couple is go to war. Now they're in paradise. Everything's perfect. Where do they need to go to war at? Where's the enemy? What needs to be subdued? Just turn to chapter three, and what do you find? There's a snake in there, and that snake is evil. And that snake wants to steal and to kill and to destroy everything that's good. That God's mandate to Adam and Eve, yes, be fruitful, yes, multiply, yes, enjoy the creative order, but also there's an enemy, there's evil that needs to be subdued. Now, how do they do on that? Yeah, they lose. Right? Adam gets fired from his job as head gardener. They get evicted from their home. They release a plague on mankind that has a 100% kill rate. It's called death. They're homeless and they're naked and financially they're broke. What a bummer, huh? The snake wins. But just because the snake wins doesn't mean the mandate's gone. I still think in marriage, there's a mandate to subdue evil, or as Proverbs put it, puts it as the positive, to do good. That we still have the same exact mandate. 
We're supposed to, supposed to subdue evil and to do good. So how do we do that? Well, if you remember back to the covenant, the covenant is this. I see in my spouse a future glory, and I want to work with Jesus to see as much of that come to fruition, be fruitful, be displayed as possible. That's the covenant of marriage. So let me ask, is it good, is it loving if your spouse is super selfish to allow them to stay in their selfishness? No, that needs to be subdued. If they're stingy, is it good to allow your spouse to stay in a state of stinginess? No, that's not good. That needs to be subdued. If they're unloving, is it okay to let them stay in a place of unlovingness? No, that needs to be subdued. In order that, all the future glory can come up. And so part of being a spouse is you're saying, I want to do as much good for my spouse as possible. Now, how you do that is really important. So the book of Proverbs has this thing about wives. And over and over it says, look out, don't nag, right? I think all nagging is, is that desire in a woman, Genesis 1, 28, to subdue on steroids. That it's a really good motive and it's a really good thing to want the best for your husband. But the way that it's carried out, oh, it's so important. So let me give you an example from my life that it's been eight years and how it was carried out still rings in my head, the power of it. So this is eight years ago. Subtract eight years from all my kids. My oldest is 11. Really busy time for me. I just started seminary and uh, my brain was recalibrating to do seminary because I hadn't been in school for almost 20 years. So it was like, oh no, this is a, a muscle I've not used in a while. Busy, busy time for me. Teaching Sundays and Wednesdays, every Sunday, every Wednesday, just busy. So finally, we got some time off. I was able to go over to the coast and I was really looking forward to making sandcastles with my kids and that's it. Not having to talk, not having to counsel, not have, just let's make sandcastles. So we go over there, unpack everything. All of a sudden, all these people that we know show up as well. So my dream of like getting away and enjoying my family and being with my kids, it's destroyed. It's just put TNT into it and boom, boom, it's gone. So I'm like, oh. And, and I wasn't mean, and I wasn't grumpy, but, but I was a little bit like, ah, oh, really? Okay. So, days gone, people are back at their homes, we're actually camping over there. This is what my wife did. This is how she addressed that. This is how she did good for me. She said, honey, today you were not your best, and there's so much more to you, and normally you are your best. And that's why I love you. And that was it. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. Man, I just went, yeah, yes, I want to be my best. I don't want to waste a day. I don't want that to happen to me. Yes, eight years later, those words still ring in my head. She didn't shame me in front of the people. She wasn't like, hey, Matt, stop it. Snap out of it. Quit it. She didn't do it in front of people. She took me aside lovingly lovingly. Matt, Matt, eight years later, those words are still working on my heart and they filled my tank. That's how you do it. How you carry out this doing good is so important. Not being a doormat to your husband or your wife. No way. It's I want the best. And you have to know this. We join Jesus in that work. 
He's the potter. He's the heart surgeon. We counsel and we'll give gracious words like my wife did. And then we're trusting that Jesus will take those words and use them to do good in our spouses, to change them. But it's even bigger than that, the mandate to subdue. Like, I think every family should have some kind of a mission. Every person here should have some kind of a mission. It can transform your marriage. So I'll give you one last story and then we're done. This is from a book I read a while back. And the chapter was just titled, How Jason Saved His Family. Family up in Portland. Good family. Took kids to church. Kids were in youth group. They were involved. They're doing everything that they're supposed to do. When their 13-year-old daughter just started to change. First, she brought home this guy that always smelled like cigarette smoke. And the answers that he gave to questions were one word. Yes. No. Whatever. Why? And the dad hated the why. Have my daughter home by 9 p.m. tonight. Why? Don't have her home by 9 p.m. tonight and you'll learn why. Right? It was that kind of a relationship. And then it finally peaked when they were in their daughter's room and they found a little bag of pot. And they're like heartbroken. And so they talked to their daughter and they grounded her and they did all this stuff and she gets sullen and I hate you guys and you're ruining my life, that whole thing, right? That happens. And so Jason, this dad, is, he's just beside himself. So he actually took off for a while and, and took a day and just went and sought God. And in that, he felt like, you have no mission. So in, in a day, he went down to the bank, took out a huge sum of money on a second mortgage on his house and started an orphanage in Mexico and then told his wife, which is not doing good, by the way. It's a great mission, but you need to do that the right way. His wife blows up. They have the, uh, but he said the next morning, something brilliant happened. His wife came down for the first time in months and just gave him a big hug and said, you know what? This is what we need to do. And I'm proud of you. And so they started this mission. They started to go down there. And at first, their 13-year-old daughter was so on and, uh, uh, and then she started to engage and started to help and be involved. And then on her own, she broke up with her boyfriend and quit smoking pot. And so they asked her, why'd you do that? And she said, because when you're a hero to an orphan, you don't need pot and you don't, don't date losers. Praise God. We're all supposed to have mission. There is evil out there, Genesis chapter 3. There is a stealer, a killer, a destroyer. And you and I partner with Jesus in seeing that pushback. And when you have that kind of mission, what happens is it, it just infiltrates the rest of your life brilliantly. Galatians 6 says this, that we're to do good unto all, especially the household of faith. We're supposed to be do-gooders, right? That's kind of like an uh, insult, right? You're a do-gooder. Uh, man, that's not an insult to me. Amen. I am a do-gooder. When Peter is telling this guy Cornelius, 10 years after Jesus' death, remind him who Jesus was, this Roman centurion, he says, you remember Jesus. He went around doing good, Acts 10.38. I hope every single one of us, married, not married, old, young, I hope every single one of us can have an Acts 10.38 memorial service, if you would. When we're gone, people say, oh, I remember him. He went around Grants Pass, Josephine County, Jackson County, Rogue River, Selma, Cave Junction. A lot of doing good there. Cave Junction, doing good. And watch and see how it 
filters into your marriage, filters into your parenting, filters into the rest of your life, because that's how you and I were designed to push back against evil. So one pastor I know that I was reading his book, he says this, every time he closes church, he says, God bless you and go to war. What a bold statement. God because he's going off Genesis 3. God bless you. We've been in this sanctuary, but back out there, go to war. There's real evil that you and I get to subdue and do good for. So Jesus today, bless our marriages, Lord. We need your blessing. Bless those in here that are young and engaged or dating or seeing. We pray that they would be building that relationship on you, the solid rock, the third cord. I pray as we start our cars and we head out, disperse across Southern Oregon, I pray that we would be do-gooders, that where we see darkness and where we see evil in individuals or systems or in our neighborhoods, that we would be those that fight against it, push back, subdue it, and see your kingdom come and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So we need your spirit. Fill, empower, direct, speak, and may we obey. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Happy Mother's Day.